0: Welcome to the Hunts Backcountry Podcast. This is episode number three hundred and eighty-one, and our guest is Matt from New Zealand. Matt is born and raised in New Zealand. He is a hunter and an engineer, and he combined his engineering experience and his hunting experience to create some great products for mountain hunting. You may have heard me talk recently. In fact, just in the previous Monday Minute episode about my experience with the Mountain Gear Bipod, Um, and we speak with Matt, the creator of that bipod. Matt is also one of the companies and small independent brands that we are featuring right now through our Independent Gear giveaway. So once again, that giveaway is going on right now as this episode is released in December of 2022, And the deadline to enter is December 23rd of 2022. So if you're hearing this and you haven't already taken a look at the giveaway, all the great prizes up for grabs, be sure to head over and check that out. We do speak with Matt about More Than Products. As I mentioned, he's from New Zealand and they have a very unique hunting culture and hunting opportunities, even for folks from the US or other countries to be able to go to New Zealand and hunt. And so we do talk about that and more. This conversation kind of picks up right in the middle. As Steve and I started this call with Matt, we just dove straight into chatting and we pick up the conversation accordingly. So here it is. I hope you enjoy it.
1: How's the uh, tar numbers right now? I know the government's been... Trying to kill them as fast as they can, right?
2: Yeah, it's a little bit complicated in that they always killed every year anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's probably taken out of context a little bit. uh, And there were areas where the tar numbers were very high. Uh, like i i had seen basins like quite small basins in the big 250 tar in this tiny little area Jeez. And, Holy crap. and they're like <laughs> uh yeah and so they and they behave quite like feral goats we've got a large feral goat population here um and um, and they they just mob up and they'll camp and they'll just you know they'll slowly move around but it, they stay in quite large groups often. Uh-huh. Um, groups groups of two hundred is on the large Holy side. Crap. Um, but but it's uh, yeah it's it's un it's not unusual to see thirty to fifty in a group. Um, you know when you're just you just find them and, you know where they uh-huh. are and they kind of yeah so so. The, the numbers were definitely too many, I think the, the controversy came from I guess two things, lack of public consultation and also their plan was to really cull them in the areas where it was easy for hunters to get to them, if that made sense, and then leave areas which were not, not easy to get into. Uh, And also a lot of these areas that are not easy to get into, particularly on the west coast of the South Island, is what's called a wilderness area. And I know you guys there have public land that falls under different categories as well. And so the wilderness area, there's further restrictions, so you can't fly into there outside of getting a ballot. Um, So they do ballots for tar in these areas, and it gives you basically one flight in to a particular location, one flight out. And they have, I believe, they have increased the number of those, but it's still like twelve a year into an area. Uh, so, and and with the weather, weather on the west coast, it's not uncommon f- uh, to lose a week. Uh, we had a block last year, and we just looked at the weather and said we might oh. get two half <laughs> decent days over a week. This is not <laughs> worth going. So, so yeah, it, it is, and it's just a complicated issue too. They. About um, in the 90s, they set sort of a target for tar numbers, but since then, a whole lot more land has come back into. It was always owned by the public, but they do this tenure review. So down south, a lot of big stations uh, they sort of have a leasehold over the land, and what the government at the time wanted to do is essentially buy out that lease and the lease was just sort of like in perpetuity sort of thing. and mm. so the government went through and you know essentially for millions and millions of dollars purchased um, purchased this high country land. and so now that's that's while it was already public uh, government owned it kind of come come back into public use. and so those areas um, are quite heavily uh, you know some great tar hunting areas and quite heavily populated, so, so, yeah, there's this target, but also the target now, you know, it includes a whole lot more land too, if that makes sense.
1: Okay, so, gotcha. Complicated so it spreads issue. out density, yeah. Yeah, so it's not as yeah. bad as everyone makes it sound right away, yeah, on the face. No,
2: yeah, and a lot of it was just, I mean, you see this across the board, it's just... Um, it's a complicated issue and not super well communicated or done, you know, like, and this is one example of that, where the DOC, which is our Department of Conservation, um, they, I guess, in charge of running the majority of publicly owned land, uh, I guess, centrally government, central government owned land, and they released sort of their estimate of tar numbers, and I think it was something like um, around 20,000 to around 50,000. And then they just took the middle number and they said, oh, well, we'll cull 10,000 less than that or something. And, it, and that number is still more than their lower population estimation range. So, you know, so it's like, well, you're potentially c- killing more tar than what you have stated are there. Hmm. So it's just, yeah, it was um, um, just one of those things that's not difficult, not easy to do and not necessarily done the best way.
0: Are those gotcha. counts based on like them flying and doing visual observation or do you have any idea on that?
2: Yeah, there was a, there's a video online that, um, and it's got surprisingly few views um, but it it goes through the count and they basically did some aerial surveys by helicopter and then just extrapolated that Um, but that range was so large you know the spread of the range was far greater than even the minimum number and that's just because I think like, like I guess like how I said before, I'd seen you know tar densities and, and little side galleys of two hundred and fifty to a little area, and that's what I saw. So it's just it's so you know they they group up so much and and it varies so much. Yeah, I mean I don't. You know, it's easy to criticize, but I don't know how you'd get even close to an accurate study any like, you know number anyway.
1: Right. Is there um some good areas you can hike into instead if you don't draw the block
2: yeah so i personally am not a fan of the ballot blocks generally um and that's because um, unless you're one of the early ones so they actually start really early they start i think end of april which is more like a better time of the year to hunt hunt dead deer uh, than tar necessarily um, but I guess that comes back to just getting enough people into these wilderness areas to hopefully um, you know, manage the population a bit um, and then 12 periods I think for most and so I mean that's just a lot of um, hunting pressure from given that you have to be dropped at a set location and mm-hmm. um, so, and some of these are, are incredibly steep, like the upper Landsborough is, it's, um, it's pretty wild country. And there's often, especially if you get snow on the ground, there's just, there's not a lot of opportunity to move around. Um, and I know, I know some people who flew into one this last winter and, and they spent a week basically not being able to go more than 500 meters from where they got dropped off. Um,
1: Jeez. the snow was just, just so deep.
2: Ah, oh, yeah. Like the first day, they, they basically spent digging trenches, um, to put get their tent down, and then uh-huh. get between tents and stuff like that. Uh, uh, and I and I think they took a canvas sort of old tent. Um, they're becoming a bit more popular in New Zealand for those sort of hunts. And you know they had fire and and you know food stuff set up in there. mhm um, and so, yes, a little bit of luck of the draw. Um, uh, I mean, I, a friend and I, we went to, we applied for a ballot and drew one last year to go. There's a very specific area we wanted to get to. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was still quite a hike from the drop off point, but we had hiked in there previously. Um, we got dropped off by a helicopter on the edge of the wilderness area. Hiked into this area previously, and it was a mission. And so we figured the easiest way to get there is actually by this oh. particular ballot drop-off point. Um, so yeah, it just very much depends. But the yeah. the great thing with the not with not, uh, and I guess for a lot of people, you know, a lot of Australians come across a lot of people from, and there's not really any difference if you're from Australia. Or live up north in Auckland. You know, a lot of people, it's not easy to say, okay, it's Friday, the weather looks good next week, I'm going to fly down, take the week off. Mm-hmm. So, for those people, you know, it makes sense. They've got the week booked, you know, they've got the ballot, they've got their flights, it'll be what it'll be. Mm-hmm. Um, but <laughs> there's almost unlimited opportunity to, if you're willing to walk in um
1: what type of of hiking are you talking about like
2: five miles 20 miles yeah it really depends tar is one of the easiest animals to hunt from an opportunity point of view Mm -hmm. but i generally say and this just applies to all my hunting i generally say on a friday night i've either got to walk 10k or climb somewhere over a thousand meters Okay. Um, and if you leave the road and just instantly start climbing a thousand meters, you're probably you're you're probably still talking five kilometers by the time you get to where you're yeah. going.
1: Uh-huh.
2: Um, and that will give get you generally far enough back where uh, you can wake up in the morning and and not necessarily straight away start glassing animals, but they're in the area. Yeah. Um, okay. Move along okay. the ridges and you'll find them. But tar in particular, I guess, again, it depends what you're looking for, but there's places where you can hike in a a, a couple of hours and uh, and start seeing animals at least. Yeah, whereas deer are very different. Um, I mean, you might spot one on the river flats, but uh, hunting public land stags here is... um, when someone shoots a good stag, generally, it's very hard, well, you know, hard-earned. Yeah. Earned. yeah. Um, but even just finding a, you know, a three-year-old stag that's nice, but, you know, not got the age, nothing, you know, you're, you're still talking, a pretty good effort. Yeah. Um, well, so pretty- Yeah, whereas a tar, I don't know, you, can, you can find a four-and-a-half-year-old province tar um not not too far from the road if you get lucky you'll find mm. juveniles and nannies around
0: mm. okay I want to talk about like the hunting New Zealand in general like a lot of stuff we just hit um I'm glad we touched on we'll we'll talk more about hunting and then your products and obviously the intersection of that of hunting in New Zealand the uniquenesses of it and then how that led you to developing some of the products you did but like before we get into that what's your background um I'm assuming I think born and raised in New Zealand, but like at what point did you start getting in the mountains? At what point did you start hunting? Tell us just a little bit of that background and context.
2: Yeah. So I live, um, it's about 30 minutes South of Nelson top of the South Island, in New Zealand. Uh, I grew up here, was born here, grew up here and my family's been here for a long time. My dad grew up up North, but as his family came into, both of my mum and dad's family came into New Zealand through Nelson in the 1840s. And my mum's family lives on a na- neighbouring farm. And I don't know, th- th- this is as far as they got in, you know, over 100 years. So this is, yeah, pretty much very home for me. I went to, I used to sail competitively a lot, dinghy racing. And so I went to Auckland to study and do that and I did a mechanical engineering degree up there uh, and then came home, for, worked on the farm a bit and then actually spent a couple of years kind of casually working and having fun in, in Texas. And then I came back here and I'd always, you know, growing up on a farm, do, you know, go out and shoot rabbits and cats and stuff here in the evening and at night. And hunting was always something I'd done a little bit growing up. I uh, never really did, did anything on public land as such, but, you know, the odd time as sort of, you know, between 16 to 18, you go out and often it would be spotlighting on private land and you'd see some deer and the group of you would put, you know, you, you wouldn't want to know how many bullet holes in these animals, <laughs> and you're them on the back of the ute and that's pretty, you know, I guess being younger, yeah, you learn how to do things better, but it's also relatively typical here. Um, public, on private land, there's next to no rules um, regarding, you know, our, our game here is seen as pests, so spotlighting's fine. Um, you know, you can shoot the animals and never take a step closer to, so uh, those sort of things are, yeah, so that's sort of my experience in my younger life. And then coming back from Auckland, always wanted to do more hunting and more stuff in the mountains. And, and my parents did quite a lot in the mountains, um, I guess, in their early years. Um, they both, both climbed uh, Mount Cook and mountains here. They never did anything internationally. Um, but my dad spent a year in Antarctica with the guy Rob Hall that features in a bunch of those movies about the disasters on Everest. Uh, so our, my mum and they were quite into adventure racing as well. My dad did did as well and was very good at uh, river kayaking. My mum won what's called a race here. It's called the Coast to Coast. We start on the South Island on the west coast and sort of like a, a very long day um, by different methods getting you know, over to Christchurch so I always sort of had spent time in the mountains and, and when I moved back sort of my early to mid 20s I was doing more and more in the mountains and was kind of coming to the point where if I was going to um, I guess do the stuff I hadn't done yet it was going to be at a level that was, I guess the stakes just go up and so that's sort of when I decided uh, you know, I'll start focusing more on hunting Um, you know, you can kind of have those experiences but you can manage the risk a bit more whereas mountain climbing, if your goal is to get to the top of the mountain then um, there's no other way around it really (laughs)
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And, yeah, man, I just, I just got a lot of, like, not a lot, but quite a bit of pushback from my parents. You know, I remember one comment from my dad was he said, I've known a lot of uh, experts in avalanches, and they all got killed in avalanches. So, you know, it's just one of those things that the more time you spend in those dangerous situations at some matter point. Time. Yeah, it just, just has has to happen once um, and you're done. So I guess that's when I really spent more effort on the hunting side of things. And at that point, I hadn't done heaps of uh, hunting on public land, really. So I basically spent a year walking around the hills, not seeing anything. And then it's just one of those things that just clicked and then you know, you spend the next year walking around shooting the first thing you see of every different species, and just that natural evolution of you just start getting pickier, and also some of the places I would go, it's not that fun to carry an animal out if you don't really want to. Um, you don't really want to carry a meat animal out 20 kilometres. Uh, so, yeah, you just kind of that slow evolution and also uh, around that time I guess really where I started carrying animals out is that's the point when you realize if your gear's up to it or not because carrying around any backpack with sort of just camping gear is not that bad but I remember on a tar my first tar hunt I drove overnight to Christchurch got up early Drove up this valley by like two o'clock. I'd shot a tar, camped up on this ridge, and um, then it snowed overnight. Walked out and drove home on the Sunday, and it was I mean Christchurch from here is five hours, and then another nearly three hours to where I started walking. So eight hours each way, driving on a weekend trip, and at that point I had a pack. That my parents used for mountaineering It was older than me and I had a tar head and skin and some meat and it was incredibly unpeas- unpleasant <laughs> to walk out with <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was sort of the point where I was like okay um, I, this, this surely this is, can be better than this and that really I guess started I guess improving my gear in terms of buying gear but also I started doing everything I could to light my own gear I would take my tripod and every bolt in there I would chuck in the lathe and drill the centres out stuff like that Um, and it's it's, yeah it's a little bit of a um, I'm sure as you guys know uh, gear is a little bit of a slippery slope um, and so, yeah, that's that's kind of where it started. And then there was a few. Um, I have been using Tika rifles, and I would drill out the bolt handles and do other stuff. That led to me um, making the titanium bolt handles. Um, I had an experience on, I think it was on New Year's Day, um, tar hunting, and I was near the top of this. This ridge, which is is a pretty spectacular trip, but it was from the valley floor to where I was, was higher than the Grand Canyon's deep. So that gives you a pretty good idea of what the terrain's like. It's just, it's yeah, it's pretty incredible. And late in the afternoon, crossing a snowshoot, um, and it wasn't very pleasant. You know, there's a long way to slip, um, kind of like slushy snow that's done to ice over and that's where the sticks kind of came from and at that point I think Black Diamond had just stopped making the ones that they made and Stubai were temporarily not making theirs I think so there's essentially nothing on the market um, and so yeah that's kind of where the, the, the sticks started um and the bipod's kind of a similar story
0: yeah yeah i want to get to that what from an engineering perspective you said you had an an engineering degree but before you got into making these products based on your hunting experience what were you were you doing anything in engineering
2: yeah so i have always um, made a lot of my own stuff um and even when i was sailing uh, when I was seventeen, I won a national championship sailing. Is sort of like the largest, um, um, I guess club sailing class before you are no longer youth, essentially in New Zealand. And pretty much everything on that boat, I made uh, myself, um, or you know, or at least set up. That you there's some things you just can't make, but you I'd buy. The, the blank aluminium you know, extrusions for the masts and booms and a whole lot of fixtures and stuff I would mold up out of carbon fiber and stuff myself. Uh, so it wasn't completely foreign to me, but, you know, um, making stuff as such. Uh, and then that obviously continued when I was, um, I guess, in Auckland sailing, um, at that point it was essentially sort of training for the Olympics um, that sort of boat um, and then oh, there's a number of boats, but one of one of them and you know with a group of other teams all sort of um, pushing each other and, and obviously only one one of those teams got to go to the Olympics, but there's very much that same sort of like everything needs to be lighter and stronger and more streamlined. Um, and then my engineering degree, I did a mechanical engineering degree focused on um, materials, fluid dynamics, um, and, and so, and I guess structural related stuff goes in there, particularly with the materials. So, I mean, it couldn't really be any more relevant to stuff like sailing, motorsport. And now um, more and more hunting things are sort of start to fall into that category too with, I guess, just the availability of carbon products and and really the, the cheapness to of carbon where like, if you want to do it yourself, um, you'll be surprised how little you can make a rifle stock for. But the the trade-off is labor really it's just very labor intensive Hmm. um so or if you go to you know if you do it at a high level the molds and that costly and time consuming to make and take care of as well
0: the discrepancy between wanting to have everything incredibly light as you said, you're taking gear that you own, not gear that you make, but you're modifying it, you're drilling things out, you're making it lighter. And then on the flip side of that, New Zealand and the country that you're hunting being incredibly harsh and placing great demands on stuff and like showing you what will fail in country like that. Like those, those two are at odds with each other. And obviously in the perfect world, that's what we're all going for is like Let's have this be as light as possible, but yet as strong as possible. And sometimes you, you realize you've gone too yeah. far one way or the other. Like, do you have an example, not necessarily even in something that you've made, but something that you've done or something that you've tried where you're like, I went too light on this or I learned that this failed and I have to go with something stronger or potentially heavier than I theoretically want because of a... Like, again, this could be just like an ex, a story or an antidote, but I'm just curious, like where have you pushed that limit and found a breaking point?
2: Uh, not so much with my own products, um, but I have had some bad experiences with non-freestanding tents. And I have a Hyperlite two-person there, um, pyramid Tent and the thing's great, but I find here in New Zealand that finding areas to camp where the ground is firm is not always that easy. Um, You know, ideally, you set up a camp and it's flat and it's nice, uh, sort of vegetation, something to hold the ground together, and that's not always the case. I had one really miserable afternoon in particular hunting deer, and it was just howling with wind and raining, kind of sleeting, and yeah, that I just could that I just couldn't find anywhere to that the the TP would really stay well pegged down. So that's one example, um, and I'm definitely a fan of freestanding tents as a result. Um, but I think having lighter gear makes you more capable too. So it means you can, being lighter on your feet, moving. I do a lot of, a lot of my hunting is I'll pack up the tent and camp every day. So any weight you can remove means you're just more nimble, lighter on your feet. So you're less kind of prone to having issues, or if you do, you can manage them better. Um, um, but I, th- I, also think that a lot of being in the mountains is is about just being self sufficient and not going as hard as you can. And a lot of my hunt- hunting on like my weekend missions, you know, climbing that thousand meters. Um, after work on a Friday, like I often find I have cramping issues and my legs just start to cramp up and fine the next day, but it's it's just a matter of managing your body. And I think the same applies to your gear that nothing's bomb proof. But you need to know it well and be able to manage it and and you know things like don't if you get a brand new tent, the first time you set it up shouldn't be on you know, a, a week-long trip where you're flown in somewhere and you realize that oh, there they they weren't pegs in here or something like that or it's blowing a gale and you're not super familiar with how to set it up. So, um, and I, so I think mucking around with your own gear makes you I mean there's always the risk of getting it wrong Um, drilling something out which needed more strength than what you left it with but you, when you become more familiar with your stuff you can manage that the limit as well and I I mean I would think you guys have noticed that um, with the gear you sell I mean you want everything to be absolutely bondproof. proof but now and then you get someone who uses something in a way that was totally not intended to be used and um, if it's your own product you know that because you're intimately familiar with it um, but uh, if you're not as familiar with the product that's just yeah I don't know it's it's a tough one but it's just really a series of trade-offs
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I don't, yeah there's no easy answer, answer to it but um, being more familiar with the gear you can be and the, the bitter you can be really
0: yeah oh, for sure so you mentioned the, the mountain stick I, you know it's such a it's an interesting tool I think to a lot of hunters here in the US who maybe haven't hunted extreme terrain that maybe requires something like it like there is in New Zealand or um, you know in certain ranges here in the US and Alaska the north you know in Canada things like that but describe I guess what what it is I mean you mentioned like how the concept came to be from that personal experience but also kind of like utility and versatility of it because it's it's not just a, a single purpose item.
2: Yeah and a lot of it comes from you know the two products out there already is you've essentially got a a trekking pole and then you've got say your black diamond fixed length whether that's 65 70 centimetre sort of basic ice axe and the problem with both of those is that I found myself I would carry both and I've seen other people do the same and the the thing is, you really, if you're not climbing mountains, if you're just in the mountains and, you know, hunting really falls into this category, you find you don't really use the ice axe, and that's just the reality of it for the most part. Um, most of the time, it's attached to your pack, and it's really not that useful. It's just kind of dead weight. And so I would find I would leave it at, at home more than I would take it, just it's just because it's sort of dead weight the majority of the time. Um, there's no guarantee you're going to need it, um, but there's a guarantee that you're going to be carrying it around. And, and then similarly with the trekking poles, is they, I guess they're at the other end, but they, they're just not that strong. It doesn't take much to break one. Um, I've had multiple occasions where I've needed to do something. I don't know dig around, pull something fiddly out of my pocket in a bino harness, gave the stick the, the trekking pole to someone else, and it just goes down between a rock and and about a couple of minutes later, they realise I've broken the tip off. So it's just kind of I guess trying to bring those two together in something where you've got essentially the ice axe components always always in your hand, and you've got a, a I guess, a sturdier trekking pole. And so the one item uh, is generally, depending on what you're using, but is generally lighter than um, the two separate, and then you've always just got it there with you. Um, also, I find, and this is particularly in, I found in the Yukon in Alaska, you know, guys who are really tall on country where it's not necessarily super steep, um, but they just find any ice axe that's packable, like if you're over six foot, doesn't even get close to the ground. So as soon as you're done with the little technical section or whatever you you've got the ice axe out for, um, I've had a lot of lot of those guys just say, "Look, it's, it's useless to me an ice axe because I can't even get close to the ground with it." So having the extendable um, feature, I know the the taller guys really find useful. Um, and then and yeah, and then it's just I guess having it with you it's there's just a bunch of handy features from digging out rocks to get your tent camp down just sort of basic stuff like that i even just in summer i find i use it a lot in real steep stuff i'll um, put the pick into the sort of the roots and bases of tussocks and even hook around trees and it's just another um point of contact with the ground or, or whatever, something else that's attached to the ground I even use it a lot with my dog, she has a dog pack and so if it's a real steep thing I'll reach down behind and I can just hook it through the handle on the top and pull her up so there's no set use for it as such but it's just trying to give you something to take um, that you're always got i guess essentially on you it's it's more useful being in your hand than say an ice axe is strapped to your pack
0: do you carry a traditional trekking pole as well meaning like uh most folks are familiar with carrying a a set of trekking poles having you know two items obviously if you have a one mountain stick you're also carrying a a single trekking pole or you just kind of relying on that one uh piece of uh gear for support just the mountain stick
2: Yeah, so that I do just the one. Um, And even when I previously have taken a trekking pole, I would just take the one as well. So I know a lot of people take two trekking poles. That's just partly um, personal preference. And also often the country I'm in, a lot of the country is not just having one thing in your hand is easier. It's A lot of the country here in New Zealand is not super open. There's quite a bit of um, climbing through bush and scrub to get into the tops and having one hand free to grab branches or whatever is just, that's just what suited me. But I do know quite a few people uh, use a trekking pilot and a stick as well. And then You know, I guess once they get into terrain where they're more hunting, often they'll they'll put the trekking pole on their pack. But yeah, that's just my personal preference.
0: Yeah. One thing that uh, I've noticed, like on my goat hunt, we had the mountain stick and definitely with climbing, there was pretty much zero need for the two trekking poles. Like you said, like just having one item of support, just the mountain stick was great. There was times descending with a heavy pack where... It was beneficial to have both, but on that hunt and in that terrain, it was a, it was a small percentage of the time, um, that you necessarily wanted or even needed to have trekking poles in each hand. But as you said, it's very terrain and context specific because a lot of the other hunting I do, if there's opportunity to use trekking poles, you may want both, but it really depends as you said on, on vegetation, steepness, thickness, cover, all that stuff. Um, that really dictates whether or not that's going to be beneficial or even possible, really.
2: Yeah. And I, I, you know, you see the photos and there are is some hunting like this in New Zealand. We, you know, you see someone packing out and it's a long gradual walk downhill and there's essentially no vegetation on the ground or it's sort of, I guess, burned off grass in winter or in the colder months. And, you know, that sort of situation I can absolutely see why someone would want two trekking poles or you know with something in each hand, uh, um, but just uh, I guess a lot of the terrain I'm I'm moving through, it's, it, having one hand free is um, it just suits me better. And also, I do a lot of um, I guess hiking and glassing as I go, and so. You know, getting up to a little little ridge, pulling out the binos, spending you know thirty seconds. I'll just check this gut, and then I'll move on. Just having, even just having one trip, one the stick, even just one thing is, um, can be a little bit of a nuisance sometimes. So you got your pack on, you don't want your stick to fall over, you don't want to have to bend down and pick it up. Um, so just having two things to manage would uh, be. A bit of an in- inconvenience, but yeah, again, that's just that's purely personal preference and and what suits the type of hunting I do.
0: Let's talk about the bipod. I think it's gonna—I um, don't say peel to more people, but I think it's it's a broader uh, product for a lot of the folks listening to this. And I'm not only trying to talk about product today. What I really want to get out and I do want to talk more hunting here in a bit, is like everything that you're making is obviously coming from your own needs and your own experience and not being happy with like what options were out there. So you're, it's like, heck, I'm going to make something. What, what in the bipod, like give us an overview. Cause one thing I'm, we've talked a lot about on the podcast, Steve and I both personally is for us, we don't shoot many animals in all reality off of a bipod. It's, it's more rare. And so for us, when it comes to a bipod, it's like, we want something to be really light because we're we're probably going to pack it and carry it but know that it's not critical so we don't want to carry more weight for something that we may or may not need and then we want it to be able to quickly attach and detach meaning we don't want to leave it on our rifle because there's again um, more chance than not that we're not shooting with it and so we want it to be super light packable but quickly deployed if if that shot opportunity in that position comes about and your bipod checks all those boxes and provides a lot more versatility in terms of adjustment than anything I'd ever tried before. And so I was pretty blown away to have a bipod that's five-ish ounces, quick attach, quick detach. Yet it can pan, it can cant, it can adjust in height. Um, you know, you can change the angle of deployment on the legs. Like it's it's pretty crazy. But that's just my experience from perspective. I don't know your backstory on why you developed it when you developed it and all that stuff. So i just kind of love to hear that, the personal behind the scenes on it.
2: Yeah. And and I think that's probably comes back to, we have somewhat similar styles of hunting where it's all sort of backpack based, decent hikes in, decent hikes out and weight, you know, just plays a huge role in, in, your enjoyment in terms of moving around and so I felt the same for a lot of years I moved away from using a bipod at all just because I found they weren't that easy to get on target quickly I was Just better off with my pack um, and then I purchased one which was more a target shooting bipod but it had similar features to what mine's like now. Uh, and I got a few different options, but the main ones, the mountain bipod, so I'll just talk about that. Uh, but and I really like this this um, this bipod. The only problem was is that it weighed over half a kg, so over a pound. Um, and but it was so good that I lugged it around the mountains for a couple of years. And it was always on my mind that, like, this is great, but surely this can be done at least half the weight. And then it would have been about three, four years ago. I actually did up a design and I priced it all up and, you know, had a, my best guesses at what it would have to retail for. And I just thought, there's no way anyone would pay that. And I guess since then, um, more and more bipods have come on the market um, there's been more of a push for I guess lightweight um, hunting bipods and, and, and I guess just lightweight backcountry hunting stuff and, and all aspects has really progressed and I was seeing the prices other people were charging and, and I thought that you know People buying these bipods, um, and but they just don't didn't have the features that I was looking for. So I basically pulled out the design and and uh, in, in terms of sort of design principles, essentially nothing's changed. Um, made some alterations, changed sort of material selection here and there, and then and so yeah, that that kind of about a year ago, I uh, essentially had the product I was happy to go into production with. And yeah, here we are. So I guess and I think the the features that I like that I think you're kind of referring to is that you can you can really get on to target um, very quickly in I wouldn't say any position, but it drastically increases the range of um, sort of um positions that you can use it in and one thing that's been incredibly popular is how the legs spread out and your absolute minimum height can be uh, 8 centimeters. so I think that's about 2.5-3 um, inches high off the ground and, and it's I guess in the mountains a lot of sort of shots where you're shooting down on animals so just being able to get your rifle low um, I'm, you know everyone's shot off a bipod where they're trying to shoot flat and level and because of the height of the bipod you're awkwardly holding uh, the butt of the rifle quite high off the ground and it makes it really hard to get that third point of contact and it's just kind of yeah not that necessarily that easy to use and and, and really the main feature is having being able to adjust the spread of the legs which means you can adjust the height um, very quickly and I find I hardly ever now adjust, um, extend the legs at all um, most of the shooting I can do is within that height range of, of spreading the legs and also being able to get that real wide stance you can uh, you can basically I mean you, could, you can put the rifle up against um, a wall and have one leg on the wall and one leg on the floor and uh, be perfectly stable to shoot off which uh you know doesn't happen all the time but in some real steep country that means you're not trying to fiddle with the legs to get the, them adjusted to the right length so that, so the bipod will be stable um wherever you're at so yeah really i guess much much the same philosophy that you're talking about that um the best way to save weight is to not take something. So if you're taking something, it's it's really got to be worth, worth the weight.
0: Interesting you noted on like you developed it, designed it, didn't know if if the price and like the market would support it because, you know, it's, a, I bring this up, not about your gear, but about things in, in general. Sometimes you see a price point of something and you're like, you know, people are crazy and you, you just assume that just because something costs a lot means that someone's turned around and just inflated that price to make a ton. Whereas you're going, no, like, here's here's what it costs to make something and here's what I'd have to sell it for to keep the lights on and make it worth, you know, me having this business and, and actually developing these and supporting them and, and putting it out there. And it wasn't until you saw that the market would be willing to almost support it that you even launched it. So it's, it's you know, it's not always the case, but I think it's worth highlighting that there's certain, there's certain items, certain gear that from the level of materials and engineering and manufacturing just cost a heck of a lot. And that doesn't mean that it's always inflated. Like I, it was literally as you were looking, because I was looking at specs on your site, like. I mean, you go so far as to say that you even ship your products in a simple cardboard box and not a bunch of fancy stuff because you're not trying to add any unnecessary costs. So guys may see the bipod and think, God, that's expensive. But it sounds like you've done everything you can do to keep the cost down without sacrificing the product really.
2: Yeah. And, uh, you know, the stuff does cost a lot. Uh, and one of... um. One of the pain points for customers is that, especially with the newer business too, that it's just a lot of money to lay out for something you've never seen and you don't know anyone who has one, um, you know, it's really a leap of faith too, so uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's I, I appreciate it from a customer's point of view, um, but also from my point of view, and, and I think this applies across the board to most um, most products which are sort of an owner operated business in high quality in the hunting space like um, a lot of retail products, you know, you got a manufacturer, you got a distributor, you got a retail Reseller, and everyone's got their margin on that and a product like mine um, there's only one person making margin on it and I can tell you it's a lot less than what retailers generally have in terms of their markup so yeah it is expensive but in terms of what you're paying for a very high ratio of um, the money that you're paying goes purely into materials and the highest quality materials I can possibly get that you know fit the, the application. So it's um, yeah, maybe there's a little bit more value to be had there if it was more mass produced, but then it's not that easy with sort of niche, high value products. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it's a lot of money for the customer, but be rest assured that every dollar I can is going into the highest quality stuff, components and manufacturing techniques, and as little as possible is going to um, other costs. Um, Shipping is a major one, so trying to minimise that as much as possible. Uh, And that that was partly played back to the mountain stick partly played into the the redesign where the the axe and the pick are detachable a lot of that is purely comes down to shipping cost the fixed head just i mean i'm shipping air around the world um just the shipping when the shipping costs a quarter of your product um it's pretty hard to swallow so and yeah and with the, the packaging i mean It's all well and good to have nice packaging. And I appreciate that, you know, the iPhone experience when you pull something out of the box and everything's beautiful, it adds to the experience. But when you're in the mountains, whatever packaging the product came in has zero value to you at that point in time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So touch on, like, mentioning shipping. You have... What I think is obviously your original business, original store, and like its own separate website for New Zealand. And then you now have MountainGear.us, so a U.S. specific store. Um, are you shipping products, like all orders from MountainGear.us ship from the U.S.? or Like what? how does that breakdown work and how have you made that? Uh, business decision to have like a a New Zealand specific presence and then a US presence and obviously customers from across the world can also get gear as well but for our US listeners what does that look like?
2: Yeah so I guess a lot of it comes from just um, anyone who ships a lot will know that um, shipping is a bit of a pain Um, the packages don't always go Uh, to where you want them to go in a time frame you want them to get there in so really the so essentially what I've done is just duplicated the website and there's a US version and the US version uh, everything that's listed on there is in stock I've uh, a friend who when I was living in Texas he um, he's a firefighter in Oklahoma and so, essentially, he works part time for me. I ship product in bulk to his place, and then he distributes it. So it works out around the cost of having him do it is roughly about the same as me sending individual packages from New Zealand. Um, but then also should be in stock there, and it takes you know a couple of days, um, ideally to get to the customer as, as opposed to sometimes sort of three weeks from New Zealand. Um, and then also there's just the, the, um, I guess it's on your mind kind of causes a bit of anxiety that like, you know, are all these packages, nothing stuck in custom somewhere nothing's, you know, is this held up what's going on? Um, it's just, yeah, it makes it much easier um, from my point of view. So, anything on the US website should be in stock um, and it's based in Oklahoma. so pretty central location, shipping wise and it um, I, I have been having a little bit of trouble keeping stuff in stock. Uh, so there has been items where I've been selling them back ordered, but when they're back ordered they're actually all packaged up and on the way to the us and generally that takes um a week and so recently i have sold a bunch of backwater bipods but it was it, it was purely what's in the box on the way to the on the way to the us um so yeah try and um just try and make it easier for everyone um and and also i don't like uh, I guess at this point it's still a relatively small business. I don't like selling product that I don't have ready to go, if that makes sense. I don't want to take someone's money and I don't have the product there ready to go. Um, So yeah, and and being a small business, it is, um, I mean, people have been great. Everyone's Mm -hmm. been understanding and and somewhat patient about my lack of availability of stock, but the, um, I've got there's another shipment of stuff that's just arrived over there now but the last lot of bipods I sent over there um, they everything in the box was spoken for within 24 hours of me post of me I guess essentially entering the stock into the website for purchase so a little bit hard to manage uh, you don't don't know whether my stock's gonna take two weeks to sell or it'll, I'll wake up in the morning and it's all sold um, <laughs> yeah the, the joys of a small business you
1: know you yeah. um, just kind of yeah. uh, certainly relate to that it's been nice over, over over the years you get more data and you can start to predict sales and life gets a lot easier those those early days are rough
2: yeah and it's i mean it, it's selling out overnight is not the end of the world <laughs> a yeah bad yep, bad. Yep, yep. <laughs> But, uh, you know, and then, then the emails start coming in, you know, when are you next going to be in stock? And you're working overtime yeah. to try and get the product all, <laughs> all completed and, and packaged up and, and on its way. So, uh, and yeah, as, as you get bigger too, I think those fluctuations are just not as much and um, you have other people to help out a bit more. Um, but, yeah, so anything anything on the US site should be should be readily available or at the worst the, your your orders allocated to a product that, that's there specifically for you
0: yeah that's on the way cool steve i know that hunting new zealand has uh, been on your list and hopefully is going to be happening here soon like what well, we have matt what well, questions are on your mind just about hunting new zealand in general or any specific gear questions anything like that
1: Oh man, I, yeah, I'm just excited as I'll get out to finally get over that. I, re, re, thinking back on it, I was supposed to go in 19, but then my wife got pregnant and our son was born in May, so I had to cancel it. We're going to get rescheduled for 2020, then COVID hit, that got canceled, 21 got canceled, 22, uh, they still required vaccination, so we delayed it, and then now I think finally going in 23. Uh, so I'm uh, beyond excited to get over there. I know we didn't draw. Pat didn't draw a block. Um, that uh, so it's yeah. He's he's just looking at other options right now for what we can go do. Um, you, they've been able to been pretty successful drawing that block with kind of just a party application, I think. Um, but uh, yeah, I think what um, what what's the weather going to be like in May? Are you, I, I, I heard there can be a lot of rain and moisture.
2: Yeah, it really depends on where you're going to go. Um,
1: yeah, so South Island, West Coast, I know that. around, I yeah, think around Fox, Glaciers, maybe the last jumping-off point or maybe where the helicopter takes off from?
2: Yeah, there's um, sort the of West Coast. I mean, it's – how would I describe it? There's really sort of 500 um, – Kilometres long, I think, roughly top to bottom, um, and there's a range of mountains. Essentially, not so much at the top end here, but essentially within ten kilometres of the sea, there's a massive mountain range that goes top to bottom, essentially. And sort of the the middle bottom half is where most of Tara. Uh, it's. It, The West Coast on a nice day is is incredibly beautiful, Um, but often it's hard to get a nice day. (laughs) That's probably the way I put it. (laughs) Uh, A little bit south of um, the glaciers, so there's Franz and Fox Glacier, which come down to, I mean, they're receding, but they come down to a point where you can just walk from the road and see the bottom of them. And there's sort of guess, tourist hubs there, if I'd call it that. Um, and so, one of a popular place to fly from, also Haast, a little bit south of there. Um, yeah, there's, I mean, there's animals everywhere in there. Um, oh, yeah, so it's a tough one in terms of mm-hmm. there's some spots on the front range you'll find more chamois than tar. It does vary a bit, but there's. There's animals there, but it's just, yeah. There's, I would have a backup plan because there's some of those areas down there, like the annual rainfall is um, kind of hard to believe, um, mm-hmm. sort of like up to ten meters a year. Um, and and there's areas in there where one place I've hunted, there's, I don't know who put it in there, some government agency put in a, a rain measuring station, and, and I mean, there's not that many in the mountains, but this one in particular recorded over a metre of rain in 24 hours, um, so, <laughs> like... If like one inch that, is a big day.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So yeah. imagine 30 inches of rain in a day. Now, Holy crap. I wouldn't expect that, but it can happen. Um, and uh, yeah, it's um, it can be so pretty uh, wild.
1: Yeah. Obviously when you're seeing that much moisture, you're. it doesn't matter what gear you have, you're pretty much getting wet. How are you? How are you managing that, or you just get comfortable with being wet and cold?
2: I think the first thing is just to try and avoid it. <laughs> so, <laughs> 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 so, yeah, um, I, I've had some like we called off a trip last year; just didn't look worth it. Um, have uh, the year before we were in hunting where we wanted to be and we you know within reaches and stuff now it's pretty convenient um, we, we saw the weather was not looking good and so we climbed up onto a point where uh, we could get cell phone reception we called the helicopter company um, at like 9 o'clock at night and they basically looked at the weather and said yeah we could pick you up tomorrow evening, maybe in the morning. Um, outside of that, we don't guarantee that we'll be able to get back in there for a week. Jeez. So at that point, we just packed up camp and spent an extremely long day getting back to where we could legally get picked up. So yeah, it's, um, and, and on that event, um, I don't know, a, a number of m- bridges like main road state highway bridges got washed out as a result of that rain event and you know, if we didn't do that we would have been sitting there probably 5 days on a slippery mm. hill huddling in a tent three guys so, so
1: yeah sounds a lot like Alaska yeah yeah
2: it's like my <laughs> yeah. goat hunt <laughs> yeah yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah we had to pull off the mountain because it was either like yeah we can stay and ride this out for two or three days and not hunt at all or we can get out of here and we made the choice to get off the mountain and same situation like massive rain event landslides roads getting taken out etc etc it's like i don't know i never thought that that would be part of my experience but it was a it was a very real reality
2: yeah, and I mean you can just sit it out in the mountains, and plenty of people do. Um, I just guess for me personally, I don't really like being in a tent um, when it's particularly when it's raining, and I just love to be able to move around. So I will be pretty quick to say this is not worth it. And then the great thing about New Zealand too is that the east coast, like if you're in um, if you're in Haast. Um, France Joseph adds about another hour's drive away, but if you're in Haast, it's an hour over, and then you come out close to Wanaka, and two hours drive north from there, you can be in what's essentially a completely different um, climate. Really, uh, much okay. drier. The hills, are, I mean, that can still be pretty pretty wild, but they have a lot less vegetation. Um, yeah, just a lot drier. Um, big sort of like braided river valleys with um, mountains that are generally about fifteen hundred meters from the bottom of the valley high. And yeah, you could you could fly out in the morning on the west coast, and I could guarantee you uh, you could get into tar on the on the east coast on the same day.
1: Oh wow! Is there just as many? tar on the east coast is the
2: west it's hard to tell that the the real differences are much easier to find just because there's not the dense vegetation you can move around much easier and faster so you you can just open up more country quicker so i don't Uh yeah i don't know if i can give a yes or no answer to that but they're definitely easier to find and easier to find new ones on the east coast so Yeah, it's worth having a couple of um, backup options. And I mean, the only thing to consider is that when it rains in the mountains, often a lot of that water comes down on the East Coast side still. Um, So it's just really, um, I guess, if it is raining a heap, having an option where you can walk in and out where you're not doing river crossings, even on the East Coast, because at that can be an issue too, like I've got a spot yeah. where I go with my sister and we try and go every year but every time we made plans um, you know it would rain somewhere in the hills and the river would be three times what we would just go on and look at the the, the local council um, river flow data and you see the river's three times the average flow and you say okay well that was waist deep in parts getting up that river last time I don't think we're yeah. crossing it at three times a flow. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, just having, um, just, I guess, being aware that uh, if you want to go hunting, you just got to be able to get in, in and out without um, river crossings, which limits it a little bit, but there's still, it's just, I mean, the South Island's 30% public land and it's essentially 100% huntable with Essentially, no rules. We don't have bag limits. We don't have timing limits. We don't have yeah. Any day of the year, you can shoot as many animals as you want. That's essentially, crazy. there's a few exceptions, but
1: essentially. How about, earlier, you mentioned packing out tar meat. How does the how does that eat?
2: That's quite good. Yeah. Yeah. I um I don't mind it at all. Shami uh, meat's not looked on quite so good it's quite tough um, but tar mate yeah and especially uh, I mean things are changing a little bit because about you know I guess given the car the tar cull a little bit but um, yeah th- there's just been so many manis and juveniles in a lot of those groups where um, wouldn't be my first choice to eat uh, an old bull especially when they've mm-hmm. been rushing. Um, they're not going to be terrible but there's also probably within a very short distance from those bulls there's going to be a bunch of juveniles and you don't get a heap of meat off them but you pretty much don't even need a knife to pull them apart it's, yeah, you don't really get any any more tender meat and given the, given the numbers of them you don't need to f- feel like you're damaging the future population either hmm
1: right right
0: cool yeah i can't wait it's gonna Um, be fun trip this is a super broad question but when you because i know you like i don't say keep tabs or follow but you're aware of like the u.s hunting space obviously like even you're selling your products here and whatnot but like what's one thing that stands out to you Growing up in New Zealand, continuing to live there and hunt there, when you look at the kind of the culture of of hunting from afar, what's just one thing that surprises you or intrigues you about it? I know that's super broad, but does anything come to mind?
2: Yeah, I mean it's it's very very different. We, I guess, in New Zealand, you know, there's pluses and minuses. The plus being that you know there's no limitation. Well, the only limitation on your on the hunting time is really limitations you set up for yourself and i mean the great thing about that is you can get a lot of experience very quickly here um you know if, if you're someone living in the us where you just can't afford to travel much and you know as most most young people you know, in your early 20s you can't afford to go out of state and take a month off to go on big trips um, and so for someone you know in that position here in New Zealand, you can still go hunting every single weekend of the year and shoot something, whatever you like, every single weekend of the year. So there's just that opportunity to get a huge amount of experience very quickly. Um, but then also on the flip side, we just don't have, um, really just don't have the cool range of species that that you guys have over there, Um, you know, we've we've essentially got field goats, um, chamois, tar, and chamois and tar are both goats as well. And then majority of the country's got red deer. Um, We have pockets of fallow deer. They more tend to like easier farmland sort of country. Um, So not as prevalent on public land, but they're still there in places. And then we've got white-tailed deer in like two very defined locations in the South Island. Um, seeker deer, pretty widespread across the North Island, and then rooster and a few others. So, um, yeah, there are a few places awesome. you can sh- shoot wild cattle, um, but other than that, no wolves, no no predators whatsoever.
1: Is there the same tar population on the North Island, or is that
2: no, more South so, Island? Yeah. So there's no tar or shami in the North Island. Oh, really? Um, yeah, and, and then also similarly, there's no um, there's no seeker population in the South Island either. Uh, and actually, there's a few other other species, um, rooster and stuff, which I um, I believe. Um, only North Island as well. I th- I think only we have um fellow. Oh, uh, well, there's obviously elk as well. Um, there is a place where they do live on public land in sort of a genetically diluted situation. Um, and then obviously on farms and stuff like that. Um, we have we ha- we have elk here on the farm. Um, for, for breeding deer. Um, but. And they were relatively popular on, on sort of high fence trophy places, um, but yeah, it's pretty pretty limited. So um, there's Samba Rusa and Seeker are all, I believe, it uh hundred percent North Island only, um, with possibly the exception of any that have been transferred down here and and on either hunting. Um, lodges or um, sneakily released illegally <laughs> on the <dock> land, <laughs> <laughs> which does happen. Um, there's been some seeker in the North Island transferred around and released. Um, um yeah, so it happens.
1: Is there a like a little island on the very south end that has some elk or a, Um, I was talking yeah, to somebody so at some point. They said you should apply. There's a. Pretty hard to get draw, but it'd be pretty wild elk. Okay? I mean, it sounded like
2: yeah. So that's Stewart Island, and they actually have white tails. Um, there are some reds on the island, but that's it's pretty overrun with white tails. So that's one of the locations you can hunt white tails. And like you, there's a, um, I mean, there's an airport there, but I would call it a tar sealed airstrip, and there's no buildings or anything. Uh, and like you'll fly in and out and there'll be deer grazing on the side of the runway. Uh, and you go to, um, there's sort of like, a, um, I mean, there's public land, public tracks and and public huts sort of like pretty well spread out through New Zealand on public land. Um, there's great infrastructure and, and we have what's called great walks, it's, I know, whatever it is, a dozen sort of walks that the, that are, I guess, notable and and the government has just selected those to market to, I guess, as part of our international sort of tourism um, campaign. And so there's one on um, Stewart Island as well. And so you can't hunt around those huts and stuff, but it's not uncommon to, well, like when I was there, I reckon I could have probably caught some of these uh, yearling white tails by hand. Um, just by ambushing them, <laughs> yeah, get within a couple of meters very easily. Um, so yeah, there's no shortage there. Um, and then there's one other small population close to Queenstown, um, but yeah. So there's uh, the elk are in Fiordland National Park, and there's a ballot for that every year, and they're getting okay. more and more restrictive of hunt hunting over summer months. So essentially, you can't. Um, you can't really hunt stags uh, or bulls um, ju- unless you draw or over winter, which uh, Fiordland's a pretty miserable place over winter. Um, can rain pretty heavily at any time of the year. So, but yeah, lots of opportunity, just um, not necessarily lots of species opportunity, but. You do have the plus where I can be pushing through the bush on a Friday night climbing the mountain and I'm not having to worry about encountering a bear or a snake or poison spiders. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) The the only thing that could possibly harm me is either myself or going off a bluff.
0: That is nice.
1: That would be nice not to have to worry. No ticks. That's the big one for me.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean we do have ticks here, but Oh you yeah, do? Just, oh. Yeah, but they're just not an issue um w- with regards to getting them on humans. Um and they just they're not an issue on Dock Lamp. They're more just like a farm thing, like we have ticks here on oh, the farm okay. that, that we, you know, have to manage and treat our animals for. Find them find them on my dog quite often, but never on me. Interesting. So, yeah, pluses and minuses. Mhm.
0: Yeah. Well, it's been cool to connect, Matt. And hear more about New Zealand and your products. And uh, I have a feeling we may have to do this again in the future. And listeners may have some questions that we want to reach back out to you to kind of have you share some opinion and expertise on for sure. So, if you'd be up for it, may have to have you back again.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No. Any time. And and um. Got a list of products I'm working on in the future too, and you know, though again, though um, I'll kind of kind of refuse to make a product that I don't want to use my, myself, and um, so sort of based around personal experience and 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 yeah, sort of that ideally work um, in the sort of hunting situations I put myself
0: in. Nice. And uh, Mountain Gear, which is mtngear.us, is the best place to point listeners?
2: Yeah, so uh, everything's sort of uh, websites, mtngear.us or .nz, either or, and the same across um, social media. Um, Often the, the, the .nz one has a bit more, just because I guess it's easier for me initially stuff's not necessarily always available in the us um right off the bat but either either will get you in the right place but if you're looking to order anything online um go to the us one first and hopefully it's in stock
0: awesome well thanks for the time matt
2: no problem nice to talk to you guys
0: well i hope you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as steve and i did it's great to get to know matt and to learn more about hunting new zealand and the products that Matt is working on as well. Couple final things. One, the independent gear giveaway is going on. Quick reminder on that, there's a link in the show description and you need to enter before December 23rd of 2022. Next, we would love to hear any questions you have for us for the podcast. You can send an email to podcast at exomountgear.com or look for the link in the show description that says leave a message. And by using that link, you can leave us an audio message that we will answer on a future Monday Minute episode. And finally, just want to thank you guys for the continued support. Your feedback on the podcast, the fact that you guys are leaving ratings and reviews and sharing it with a friend and all that does help us tremendously. And the only reason that we keep doing this podcast and that we've been doing it since 2015 is because of that feedback and support. So thank you. And if you want it to continue, then we appreciate that support. I hope you guys are enjoying this time of year and have some great times with friends and families around the holidays. Merry Christmas. If you haven't yet hit that subscribe button so that you receive the future episodes automatically, and we'll talk to you soon.